Vicodin is America's number one most prescribed drug. Physicians prescribe enough opioids for every person in America to have a bottle. And although the U.S. only has 5% of the world's population, we consume over 80% of the world's supply of opioids. You think with this veritable cornucopia of painkillers, we'd have pain in the U.S. beat to smithereens. But in the last two decades, as our opioid prescriptions have quadrupled, Americans' ratings of how much pain they're experiencing has not changed. Not one bit, not one aorta. What we have created is a generation of opioid misuse, opioid-addicted patients, IV drug abuse, opioid overdose, and death. As clinicians, we can point the finger at a lot of different factors. Poorly conducted studies, poor medical education, pharmaceutical influence, pain scores, patient satisfaction surveys, the list is long. But at the end of the day, we have to accept the fact that in most cases, we are as addicted to prescribing opioids as some of our patients are to taking them. And overzealous treatment of pain and prescribing of opioids is perhaps the root cause of America's opioid epidemic. Today, on the Emergency Medical Minute, we continue our series on Colorado ASAP's 2017 Opioid Prescribing Guidelines. Our topic is limiting opioids from the ED, how to change our opioid prescribing practices and policies to put less of these dangerous drugs in the hands of our patients. My guest, Dr. Eric Verzemnik, Colorado ASAP Opioid Guideline co-author, opioid expert, Pantene Pro-V hair model, and ED physician at Swedish Medical Center. This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. Thank you so much for joining us on the Emergency Medical Minute. How did you get so involved in this opioid gig anyways? Well, first, thank you for having me. That was a beautiful and embarrassing introduction there that you gave. Uh, but I got involved kind of just through my own experiences, wanting to kind of address what I thought was probably inappropriate use of these opioids. You kind of learn one way in residency and coming out have a chance to form your own practice. And it was... Uh, just something I kind of got interested in um, and then went from there. Yeah. I mean, I think back just to my own residency practice and the message, the only message I ever got with opioids is you have to use them aggressively and I think we're going too small with them. Just instead of giving five milligrams, we should be giving 10 milligrams of morphine. And uh, I remember one of my favorite residents, smart doc uh, named Sanjay, he always would tell patients, and I thought it was so smooth, I've got more drugs than you've got pain, so we're going to get it under control. And I think that was the mentality that we all had. Just bring the hammer to the party, and if they keep having pain, just keep on hitting them with the opioids. 
you know, and now, uh, now we're starting to learn how wrong that mentality is. Absolutely. There's a lot of emphasis, it seems like, on underdosing these medications, and we had to keep giving more and more and more. Yep. Uh, and that was definitely the message that I kind of uh, took. Yeah, opiophobia, oligoanalgesia. I mean, we've tried <laughs> to medicalize this, but, uh, but at the end of the day, we're just given a lot of these drugs that make people feel high. Right, yeah. absolutely. So today's topic is one that's very relevant to all of our practices, which is good policies on how we limit the amount of dr these drugs that we give to our patients. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through several of our practice recommendations. There are 14 in total. And Eric, what I'd like to do with you is kind of just add some rationale and some color to why these are practice recommendations in these guidelines. So let's get started. Practice recommendation number one. Opioids are inherently dangerous, highly addictive drugs with significant abuse potential, numerous side effects, lethality and overdose, rapid development of tolerance, and debilitating withdrawal symptoms. They should be avoided whenever possible and, in most cases, initiated only after other modalities of pain control have been trialed. Holy God, that first one is a long mouthful. <laughs> it is. Who wrote that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there... I think the first part of it, is there really any debate now that opiates are bad? I would hope that in the rising epidemic that we're in, most people would acknowledge that as fact. Uh, if not, you probably need to get on board. Uh, but I think there's, I love the second part as well, about just focusing on you know other modalities first uh, before jumping to those opiates, because I think that's something that we often overlook, yeah. and I know I did in the past. Yeah, and you know, on, on the... The podcast that's coming on right after this, our, our pharmacist extraordinaire, Rachel Duncan, is going to kind of go through a lot of the different drugs that we can use to control pain. But, I, you know, one of the things is I don't think we, we acknowledge how dangerous these drugs are. I mean, of all the narcotics that we have, opioids are the most dangerous drug. I mean, you can make an argument that it's the most dangerous drug physicians prescribe. And we have 33,000 people dead in 2015 to prove that fact. And it's so dangerous, yet very rarely questioned yep. when I give it to a patient in the emergency department or when I prescribe it for someone to go home. Mm -hmm. you know, no one comes up to me and says, really, do you sure you want to do this? Is it going to be okay? It's just part of our regular day practice. Yep. And, you know, if you designed a drug to control pain, you could have designed one worse. I mean, just go through the list of how quickly addictive it is, how dangerous it is when you take it with other things like alcohol or benzos, how, how, quick, how narrow the therapeutic window is, how unforgiving it is in overdose. And then you throw in the extra stuff, like, holy crap, it's an immunosuppressant and people get pneumonia more. And holy crap, when you give it, it might actually cause chronic pain, right? Opioid-induced hyperalgesia which there's awesome studies on in animal models that show when you give opioids to animals with broken bones or with painful conditions, you actually lower their pain threshold so that in the future, that animal that experiences a painful stimuli will have a, a larger amount of pain with a small amount of painful stimuli. So it's just crazy. Yeah. Okay, so at the end of the day, opioids, bad juju, we should not want to prescribe these drugs as much as we do. And I think once you realize how bad they are, 
your desire to give them for every ankle sprain or musculoskeletal or undifferentiated back pain, which you've CT'd, should plummet. At least mine has. I'd agree with that. And although it's not the focus of our podcast today, when you find out some of the excellent alternatives, I think it'll completely change your practice. Practice recommendation number two. Prior to prescribing an opioid, physicians should perform a rapid risk assessment to screen for abuse potential and medical comorbidities. Alternative methods of pain control should be sought for patients at increased risk for abuse, addiction, or adverse reactions. Before we wrote these guidelines, I never did this at all. I mean, it, I didn't even think about a patient before I ordered them an opioid uh, or think about their potential for abuse. Yeah. And it's amazing how quick you can screen for abuse potential in patients. It literally takes just a minute or two. Exactly. It, it, it can be done very briefly in the emergency department, and our time is certainly of utmost importance. Um, and again, I never did this at all in the past. I think the most I discussed or I thought about was whether someone needed a half milligram of Dilaudid or a full milligram of Dilaudid. Um, I really didn't think about the long-term uh, downsides, and let alone the addiction potential um, and the risk a patient might have to abuse them. Yeah. And so let me run, run our listeners out there. So when you walk into the room, here's how you can do a rapid risk assessment. First, you can review to see if they've had a problem with addiction in the past, right? And I often ask patients, do you have a history of addiction or is there a family history of addiction? If they answer yes, you know that they're high risk. The second thing is when you look at a patient, figure out how old they are. And I don't mean to be ageist, but a young adults are at higher risk for opioid misuse than other populations. The third thing, you can pull again from your medical history. Do they have a history of psychiatric disease? Depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, these patients are at higher risk. And one of the interesting ones that's coming out recently that's not in these guidelines but papers have been written about, cigarette smokers. People who are addicted to cigarettes have a higher risk of addiction to opioids which makes a lot of inherent sense. Those are great points. It goes beyond just the more obvious things about if they've diverted in the past before or if they've abused drugs before. Um, and a couple of very important things. I think I like the, the family history of abuse, a very important thing to talk about that I often don't uh, and have started to do uh, much more frequently. But again, we focus in, it kind of harps on the first recommendation as well, looking for alternatives. Um, and potential, especially looking at patients that have other medical comorbidities, because they're going to be at a little bit increased risk of potentially experiencing other side effects as well. And these are both acute and chronic diseases. They tend to involve pulmonary comorbidities such as COPD, sleep apnea, someone with an acute pneumonia certainly would be at a higher risk. Uh, also, any cardiac comorbidities, especially CHF, can have a higher risk of experiencing some of the unwanted side effects, including overdose. Uh, organ dysfunction or failure in general, especially renal and hepatic failure, can place these patients at high risk. And then, of course, elderly age, people at the extreme of age, uh, certainly are at higher risk for potential complications. So things you really got to keep in mind uh, when you're thinking about prescribing an opiate or administering an opiate um, beyond just the abuse potential, but also what else in their medical history, both acutely and chronically, uh, might place them uh, at higher risk of these side effects, and where should you seek alternatives? Yeah, and, uh, and you're right. It's, which of these patients could I potentially give a drug to 
screw up their physiologic milieu and have that patient not breathe very well and potentially pass out from an unintentional pass away from an unintentional overdose. Mm -hmm. And some of those pulmonary conditions especially, you have to use a low dose or use these drugs judiciously. Practice recommendation number three. Emergency physicians should frequently consult Colorado's prescription drug monitoring program to access a patient's history of prescription drug abuse, misuse, or diversion. Well, besides it being required in Colorado that anyone with a DEA license needs to be registered uh, to use the PDMP, it is a great resource as it stands, and we can talk about the downsides of it and how it could be better another time. But we pay for it too in our licensing. So lots of reasons she's use it. But also it's a great resource just to find a patient's history of potential opiate diversion or abuse. Um, try to also support the history that they're telling you. Sometimes it's nice to confirm it and see that they're being honest and open to you. Um, and anecdotally, I mean, how many times... I think we always, you know, the patients are saying, oh, I need that medicine that starts with a D. It's the only thing that works. I mean, there's, there's some things that certainly give us red flags, but how many times do you have the seemingly high-functioning, like middle-aged mom in for an acutely painful condition, and you don't really think about it. it seems reasonable. Nothing's really drawn up any red flags, no family history of abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And you just check the PDMP, maybe have a little bit of downtime, and whoa, there's a list of multiple prescriptions going back months you wouldn't have known otherwise. And I know a couple of cases where that's happened, um, and it's very surprising. And it kind of shows you how wide opiate abuse is, um, but also how the PDMP can be very helpful. Yeah, I, I, I agree totally. Uh, the PDMP, accessing it has changed my plan for a lot of patients. And it's amazing, people that you wouldn't think about you know, who you find out are diverting drugs or being dishonest about their opioid use. And now, not only can you identify that patient and say, hey, I shouldn't be prescribing more opioids to them, you can actually use that, go back in, have a sit down, and try to get that patient help. Try to get them to acknowledge that they have a problem and try to get them to get into a rehab program or something that might change the course of their life. Now, a few other things people don't realize about PDMP is one, you don't have to be the only person to access it. Mm -hmm. That every physician, if you're an ER doc out there, you can actually have delegates who can access the PDMP for you. So you can, you can make a delegate a scribe. You can make a delegate a receptionist. You can make it someone who you can just turn to and say, hey, I want you to check the PDMP on the patient in room number five, and they can report back to you. And that's a resource that not a lot of emergency doctors know about and use, but we should be, because it makes it easier on the physician to do the right thing for the patient. Now, one day, hopefully, we're going to have a PDMP that's just like Washington's or some other state where it's integrated into the EMR or it's absolutely just pushed to physicians. But until that day, it's worth your time to go and check the PDMP. We should be doing it more often. One paper I think we cite in this recommendations a paper that looked at Ohio and they implemented their PDMP and just looked to see if it changed clinicians' practice. And it did. Uh, you know, less than half, about 40%, ended up altering their opiate prescribing. But I love just one patient out of there had 128 scripts over, tw over 12 months uh, that wasn't disclosed otherwise. I mean, that's just insane. <laughs> uh, you know, that someone could like that could be manipulating so many people. Uh, 
it really just stood on my mind. Again, a, a good reason to search the PDMP, ideally on all the patients you're considering prescribing opiates to. Yeah, and it just shows, you know, some of our mentality, let's be honest, is when you have that person come in, it's much easier to just write them a script and get them out of the emergency department than to actually try to have a difficult conversation to them about their opioid misuse and overuse. But at the end of the day, that's not the right thing to do for the patient. We've got to take back um, really how we're prescribing these drugs and do the right thing for the patient in front of you. And most often, that involves checking the PDMP and not writing a script that feeds their addiction. Practice recommendation number four. Emergency physician groups should strongly consider collecting and sharing individual opioid prescribing patterns with clinicians to decrease opioid prescribing variability. Don, you're a high prescriber, right? I'm perhaps the highest of all prescribers. You are, yes. I think so. We've been trying to rein you in for a while now, so it's glad to see you coming on board. Yeah, but, you know, think about this. I know to almost a percentage how many patients I'm seeing per hour, mm-hmm. how many RVUs mm-hmm. I'm, I'm generating. I know how many patients I admit to the hospital. I know how many CT scans I, I order. Oh, it's insane. Yeah. Metrics are here to stay, Metrics whether you like it or not. Yeah. But then a metric like this that actually identifies maybe a flaw in your practice or whether you're a candy man or candy woman we don't have, right? And this is uh, something that all EDs can easily pull and easily provide to our docs, to our PAs, and to our NPs. Are you the candy man of your practice? And I think it's important to share this information to doctors, to physicians, so they can see the variability, ultimately try to rein it in a little bit. It's, it's helpful to have a consistent and message on opiate prescribing within the group. It's hard to, if you have a patient in front of you that got a script from one of your partners a couple months back for an exorbitant amount of opiates, and here you are trying to talk to them about you how you can't prescribe that much or for that long or for that condition, and they're coming back at you, well, so-and-so did it when I was last year. Kind of puts you in a little bit of an awkward situation. Uh, So it's nice to, I think, have that information available to hopefully dry practice mm-hmm. and just tighten it up a little bit because there are people that prescribe a lot and people that prescribe very little. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing. You look at the numbers uh, from several studies. One is the New England Journal article that came out earlier this year. There's other articles that show that prescribing variability in EDs is huge. Uh, in one study, you know, docs, the top doc was prescribing opioids to 33% of his patients at discharge. The bottom doc, 3%. Think about that. That's a tenfold variability in how one doc is prescribing versus another. And somewhere maybe in between is the right amount, but definitely that high doc needs to know that they're the number one prescriber in their group. Because that really, that type of information makes you look at your practice, gives you that introspection to say, hey, I am way outside of what the rest of the group is doing, maybe it's time that I examine how I'm using these drugs because what I might be doing is detrimental to the patients that I'm trying to care for. Absolutely. Such a high number of patients getting opiates, I don't think could be accounted for any other way. Um, And peer pressure does help. Uh, And certainly I would want to know if I was an outlier so I could kind of tighten things up. You know, being a new attending, sometimes you don't really get a sense of what those around you are doing. It was 
very apparent on residency, everything that was going on in the department and how people practiced. You got a sense of each attending, but it's a lot different now. So this is information I'd want to know. Yeah, yeah. We have to we have to start breaking down the silos when it comes to opioid prescribing. Right. We should be stewards of this just like we are on CTs, antibiotics, and all these other things that we're getting metrics on. So if you're listening to this, you should go to your medical director and you should talk to them about the fact that you want this data. You need this data to really start moving the, the needle on opioid prescribing in your ED. Practice recommendation number five. Strongly consider removing pre-populated doses of opioids from order sets in computerized provider order entry systems. Who doesn't love CPOE? I mean, wow, let's, let's, just, let's just professor love for the fact that physicians now have to be clerks who enter in orders for everything. It's just the greatest. What do you think, Eric? <laughs> oh, yes, love it. Although it's interesting, this is how I learned how to prescribe so many different medications. You know, it just clicked off the box and it became part of my practice, yeah. you know. Uh, but they are nice. They do have a role. They do speed up and kind of standardize some of the ordering for certain presentations. But there's a big drawback when you're starting to pre-populate opiates. Um, and I think opiate prescribing should be a very active process. It shouldn't be passive in any way. Yep. And, um, and here's an example. You know, in some of the order sets that we had, like abdominal pain, it blew in three doses of IV Dilaudid. You didn't, you, you, you didn't think about it. You had to go and actively unclick it if you didn't want to narc your patient out. Right. And if, it, if I, it's not going to be unclicked automatically, I ain't going to unclick it. The only reason I don't order pregnancy tests on men is because it takes care of it for me. Otherwise, <laughs> I'd be doing that too. Yep. So these order sets, a lot of people don't realize the inherent biases that are worked into our medical system. When people come in and they have a complaint and you say, hey, it's easy to just click on this chest pain order set because it has my trope, it has my EKG, it has my x-rays, etc. Or the sepsis patient where you can just click on that order set that has your whole sepsis bundle. But any order set that pre-populates opioids, opioids for pain, is a bad idea because it makes the bad thing to do the easy thing to do. And that's just blowing in opioids mindlessly so that patients are getting it before a risk assessment, before you're thinking about that patient. It's an automatic. I mean, opiates certainly have a role, but yeah, just doing it so, so passively, just automatically like that. And it's, it's been nice to see that we got rid of it auto-populating in our order sets um, because, hey, you really... You should consider alternatives. You should consider how much does this patient need an opiate um, before, before you do it. Yeah, I think every doc has to make that conscious decision to prescribe these drugs, especially considering how dangerous they've been shown to be. And this is an easy way for trying to look at reducing the amount of opiates in your emergency department is just get rid of it pre-populating. I'm sure your numbers will go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Emergency docs, go to, your, go to your computer nerds, go to the people who create your order sets, and ask them to take off any pre-populated opioid doses. They could still be on the order set, but you should have to go and click on it after you've thought about the patient. It shouldn't be an automatic, right? We shouldn't be doing a bad thing for our patients automatically, which is, which is exposing them to the risk of an opioid. Practice recommendation number six. Opioid alternatives and non-pharmacological therapies should be used to manage patients with acute lower back pain in whom opioids are particularly detrimental. 
opioids should be prescribed only after alternative treatments have failed. Mm, back pain. Favorite. <laughs> oh, not a shift goes by, does it, without seeing back pain? No, nope. back pain definitely pays the bills. It's part of the bread and butter. <laughs> it's, it's, it's inherent in the DNA of the emergency physician in our patient population. Right, right. And, it, it, you know, it's tough. It, it, and I, I feel for these patients. I have not experienced severe back pain, but it looks god-awful. And it's really easy just to throw opiates at a lot of these conditions, particularly back pain. It gets the patient out very quickly. But, you know, in so many of these conditions, in opiates in general, we don't have a lot of evidence that shows that there's a lot of benefit beyond other treatment options. And back pain in particular has evidence that suggests it might actually be detrimental. So I think the fact that we have that, it's staring us right in the face, really should give us pause before we start prescribing opiates in particular for uncomplicated back pain. Yep, and uh, I have experienced back pain and back spasms. I will, I will empathize and, and have compassion for all these patients because I know firsthand that it sucks and it sucks bad. But when I'm there and I'm staring at a patient in the face and I'm trying to control their pain, I never reach for opioids now for back pain because I know that when you give opioids for back pain, which is, you know, muscular based, maybe even has a component of sciatica, that when you prescribe opiates, these patients have a longer course of recovery. They have an increased amount of long-term disability because those opioids, especially in back pain, seem to rewire our nervous system to feel more pain at a lower level. And that's been shown now from a lot of occupational therapy literature that opioids and back pain is a dumb, dumb idea. Because really what we're trying to do is, yes, make patients more comfortable. But in this particular, we're trying to get them to function. And that should be our primary goal. And the opiates just don't get them there. They actually have higher rates of being disabled down the line when they're started on opiates. Um, and I think this is kind of one area where scripting can be very key. Uh, and very key in general when you're prescribing alternatives or opiates in general is to talk about kind of what their role is. It's not to eliminate all the pain. It's to get that pain that's very severe down to a functional level and use alternatives when you can. Um, and this is one area where I think it's, it's important to have that discussion with patients because it can be very, very tough. For sure. And it's, uh, it's something where, one, You've got a lot of different things in your pocket, too. Mm -hmm. You don't mm -hmm. necessarily have to always reach for Norco or Percocet with people with back pain. You can start them on a muscle relaxer. You can start them on a good anti-inflammatory. If they don't want to go home with Motrin, heck, prescribe them Mo Mobic, prescribe them Diclofenac, prescribe them Tordal, something that they don't recognize so they think they're getting a prescription drug for it, right? And the other thing that I've started doing, if you got lumbar back pain and I can push on your back and you go, holy God, it hurts there and they flinch, go stick a needle in that thing and give them a trigger point injection. I've been amazed by how well trigger point injections for acute low back pain work. In fact, I think it's the most effective thing that I do to get these patients comfortable and to get them going home. I, knew, I do know that you like sticking your needles everywhere, so, uh, and I've started incorporating my practice too, and it is phenomenal when you see it work. I, was very, I think a lot of people are skeptical at first, but you see the impact it can have um, and how little it takes to do it. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense. Oh, it hurts there when I push there. 
let me numb <laughs> there up and let's take away some of that pain. Yes. I, it doesn't take a rocket science. Brilliant, groundbreaking and Granted, stuff. I'm perhaps the dumbest person in our group, but I can figure out that if there's an owie there and we numb up that owie, you'll probably feel better. <laughs> so, in conclusion, stop it. Don't do it. Don't give opioids for low back pain. You're just doing your patient a bunch of harm. And the first rule of medicine still and will always be do no harm. Practice recommendation number seven. Potential drug interactions must be evaluated and opioids should be avoided in patients already taking benzodiazepines, barbiturates, and other narcotics. Do you like it when your patients come back dead? Typically, no. Typically, no. Yeah. yeah. The, Generally the, bad form. The most dreaded phrase in emergency medicine is, hey, remember that patient that you saw the other day, right? It's, you, you tell me that a lot. Yeah. You yeah. Do. Well, yes. well, there's been a lot of quality issues. There. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> but it's, it's definitely one of those things that these are the most dangerous drugs we prescribe. And when you decide for a person with chronic pain who's already on, you know, maybe, maybe Dilaudid or on Oxycontin or some long-acting opioid and already on a muscle relaxer, and you say, hey, I'm going to rate them for 10 pills of Percocet because on top of their chronic back pain, they sprain their ankle, you are asking for a medical disaster. Yeah, that is definitely not the approach you should be taking. And it's insane, uh, you know, how much if you start mixing these sedating agents with opiates, their risk of overdose becomes. With benzos, it's like 10 times higher in some studies. I mean, that's incredible. Um, I was just scanning through a couple other papers here before I came in. In Washington State, about 48% apparently of the opiate deaths in one year had a sedating agent involved in them. Um, Another study looked at a VA population, 49% had specifically a benzodiazepine. Uh, and a lot of people get prescribed the same, the opiates and a benzodiazepine together. And I guess people do not recognize the risk mm-hmm. involved with combining these medications. And although I don't have as much data on that, it would be the same with anything, like a barbiturate, um, even like a muscle relaxer. You've got to be very careful about combining the two. And if someone's on opiates, escalating it or providing them a different opiate, thinking that they'll somehow better control their pain is absolutely the wrong way mm-hmm. of approaching. Yep. And let's hearken back to the policy, the practice recommendation we discussed before. A lot of people I see are still prescribing Percocet and Valium for back pain, right? Oh, here's a good muscle relaxer. We're going to give you Valium. Oh, your back pain's really bad. We're going to give you a narcotic like, like Percocet. You're asking for that patient to overdose. And if that patient were to come in overdosed or to have an adverse reaction, now that the CDC guidelines are out, now that there's all these different studies saying that these are bad in combination and together, I think that you'd seriously be looking at a lawsuit and possibly writing a big ass check. Now I got a question for you, Don. When you have a patient that is on an opiate and a benzodiazepine, do you have discussion with them? about the risk? Because I definitely have done it where I've even prescribed these patients Narcan because I feel like they're such high risk of overdosing and trying to address uh, you know, how, how much of a danger that is to them. Yeah, I'd say definitely if you're going to do it and you're going to take that risk, you got to have an informed discussion with that patient. A lot of patients are on these two things chronically from their PCP office, etc. I think we now know that's just bad medicine. Let's call it what it is. It's bad medicine. 
And whenever I look at that and I think, hey, this person needs to be prescribed an opiate, I tell them that they can take one or the other. And I usually will recommend that they do not take them in combination. Practice recommendation number eight. Patients with chronic pain should receive opioid medications from one practice, preferably their primary care provider or pain specialist. Opioids should be avoided in the emergency department treatment of most chronic conditions. Emergency physicians should coordinate care with a patient's primary care or pain specialist whenever possible. And previous patient-physician contracts regarding opioid use should be honored. Another very meaty recommendation there. We'll have to go through. And I think this was, as far as like rules I had in place with opiate prescribing, this was one that I seemed to have from the beginning that, you know, I was not going to be refilling patient. Actually, start over. This is, we, there's a separate recommendation for that, isn't there? For About not refilling. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I just realized that. All right. Uh, wait, should be educated. I'll be. Uh, let's see. Refill lost or stolen. So that's for lost or stolen. So no, we don't actually have that, Eric. You can talk about that. Yeah. So about giving chronic pain, you know, opioids in the ED. Yeah, you can gotcha. talk about that. Okay. okay, go ahead. All right. So yeah, another meaty recommendation here. In looking back and how I prescribe opiates, I think around chronic pain is one of the first areas where I kind of set this in place some rules or was taught some rules that these patients that are managed by typically a pain specialist are best continue to be managed by the pain specialist. And I shouldn't get in the way. And I don't think it's good medicine for me to be prescribing additional prescriptions to them if they run out or prescribing escalating doses and trying to work with their primary care provider or their pain specialist if something does need to be done uh, rather than going on it alone. And most of these people will have a contract of some sort if they're on a chronic pain regimen that might be voided if they are prescribed additional opiates from us. So it could really screw things up. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, chronic pain is one of those things that the literature is really evolving and evolving pretty rapidly. Opioids are not good for chronic pain, first of all. They just aren't. Um, some of our patients will experience chronic pain, and that's, that's a really hard thing to acknowledge and a, and a hard pill to swallow, um, no pun intended, that a patient might experience pain for the rest of their life. But when we treat chronic pain with opioids, what we find is we don't actually cure their chronic pain. What we create is a patient who has chronic pain and an opioid addiction. That's the bottom line. And, you know, just this month, there was a recent study that came out of the Minneapolis VA, right, where they had all these patients with chronic painful conditions, and they randomized them into two groups, opioid group, non-opioid group, strictly non-opioid group. First of all, the patients who are in the non-opioid group didn't want to be there, <laughs> right? That was, that was to me the funniest thing about the paper. The, the, the patients who were put in the non-opioid group were like, what, doctor, please? Like, you got to be kidding me. But then they actually ran the study out. And at the end of it, the pain scores were the same in both groups. The opioids didn't make those chronic pain patients feel better. It just gave them higher risk of overdose, higher risk of addiction. And then if they tried to come off their meds, withdrawal. Congratulations. You've taken one problem and boom, boom, created two. Abracadabra, right? So 
When patients come in for chronic pain, these are difficult conversations. Let's be honest, because these patients are suffering. They really are. But when you go, go and talk with them, I often say, hey, listen, we have a policy. And the CDC recommends also that we don't give you more opioids for this chronic pain. I'm happy to try other stuff. And I can go through a whole list of things I'm willing to do to help you control your pain while you're here with me in the emergency department. But one of the things I won't do is prescribe you an opioid during this visit or when you go home because I don't think it's best for you. And also, I think that in a way, because opioids lower th pain thresholds and because opioids change that patient's phys physiology, a lot of times the opioids make their chronic pain worse. No, exactly right. That study just tells us what you led into at the beginning uh, in the intro is that pain scores are staying the same, yet opiates are just widely available. And with the CDC document coming out on chronic pain, it really bolsters our position that for chronic pain, opiates from the emergency department, and in general, bad. Don't do it. Practice recommendation number nine. Clinicians should abstain from adjusting opioid dosing regimens for chronic conditions and avoid routinely prescribing opioids for acute exacerbations of chronic non-cancer pain. So this, I think, really just feeds into what we spoke to above. Really, for chronic pain patients, the above recommendation, the one before this says, they should really be getting all their opioids from one shop. You shouldn't be giving them more, right? And if you do decide you want to tinker, you should do it in concert with their pain doc. You know, this, how I think, feeds into the recommendation above is just reminding us that one, we shouldn't prescribe these for acute exacerbations of that chronic pain. And two, you shouldn't start tinkering with patients' pain regimens because you might screw up their pain contract. You might actually accidentally overdose them if they've got a small physiologic reserve. We shouldn't be messing a lot with chronic pain. Now, a question I can think might come up with is, well, what if someone you have is on chronically opiates and then they have a new injury, a new acute injury that maybe would necessitate an adjustment to that. And I can think back to a couple of patients I've had typically tend to be like involved in a motor vehicle collision um, with, you know, some sort of musculoskeletal injury, typically like a fracture, you know, and they may be very sensitive to pain. We talked about that opiate hyperanalgesia that is real. And so how do you best go about dealing with that? And that's when I call the pain specialist to talk to them. I don't, this is not something you should be doing alone, um, not only because you might void their contract, but you want to make sure you're doing it safely. So you need to talk to the, the doctor that's, that knows them well. Mm -hmm. you know, people who are on lots of long-acting opioids and you're going to add more opioids, you know, there's a machine that should be flapping its arms saying, danger, danger, Will Robinson, right? So just do this and recognize the inherent dangers. I agree. If someone comes in and they've got a femur sticking out of their leg uh, and they're on a chronic pain medications for back pain, I'm not going to neglect that patient and say, hey, sorry, bud. <laughs> that femur looks bad, but from here on out, it's Tylenol for you. I'm definitely going to be giving that patient opioids. And, you know, if, if I can, you know, send that patient home, of course, I'm not sending home that open femur. But still, if I'm sending that patient home, I do think coordination with their pain doctor is the smart thing to do. Don, you remember that patient you sent home with the open femur? Yeah. They're back. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Practice recommendation number 10. Long-acting or extended-release opioid products should be avoided for the relief of acute pain. I didn't really know this was a thing. Is yeah. it a thing? Yeah. Do people I, prescribe these? I think there are. There's a small number, and you know, we, we did have a case that was tragic at my old practice about someone mm. being 
set home on a fentanyl patch and adjusted fentanyl patch. And at the end of the day, you know, as docs, we try to do the right thing for people. I think some of us have kind of said, oh, well, there's a long acting medication that, that, you know, makes my patient not have to dose them as much. But as ER docs and specialists in acute management, we shouldn't be touching these drugs. I mean, extended release Oxycontin, fentanyl patches, all these things have a much higher risk of overdose than your typical Norco Percocet that we usually prescribe from our doors. So just don't do it. It's dumb. You don't need to. And it exposes the patient to a lot of risk. Absolutely. It is surprising that this is done, and I kind of get why it may be. But most acute painful conditions that we're going to treat with opiates are fairly self-limiting. And these can way overdo it as far as pain. Also, you know, patients that take it correctly, these extended release, they're getting a significant amount of that opiate straight up. And if they take it incorrectly, they might, like if they chew it, Mm -hmm. suddenly they're getting a tremendous amount. That's going to place them at overdose risk. And we do see this pan out in studies that show that these patients have a significantly higher risk of overdose. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I see this sometimes when people give doses of methadone to people who are withdrawing. And, you know, first, that's a bad idea. You need a special license for methadone. Um, so just don't, don't do the long-acting opioids. That's the, that's the bottom line. So maybe this is a good time to have a little bit of a tangent conversation. Mm. Eric, do you know why Percocet and Narco have... Tylenol in them. Hmm. Tell me why. <laughs> it's actually not to better control pain. Oh, it's isn't. So, it's so you can't actually use therapeutic doses of those drugs for pain. Hmm. They want okay. they want to make sure that people aren't taking Tylenol to control their pain when they're taking their Percocets. I knew it was a conspiracy. And those those dirty, dastardly pharmaceutical comp- companies. I mean, they're smart. They're smart cookies, right? Oh, we've created a combination pill. But the real intent of that isn't to actually control pain better. It's to make it more complicated for patients and for pharmacies to tell patients, hey, when you're taking this, make sure you don't take Tylenol. And one of the things you can do that I've actually started doing is prescribing my patients when I send them home with, a, with an ankle fracture, etc. I prescribe them actually Tylenol, Motrin, and then just single use either oxycodone or hydrocodone, right? Oxycodones. And I tell them, hey, take one gram of Tylenol, 400 to 600 milligrams of Mortrin. That's usually good enough for most mm-hmm. pain. And if you can't handle it with that, then go ahead and just take that oxy, oxycodone that's been prescribed. And usually I'm only prescribing around six to 10 pills of that because that acute pain should only last for a few days. Absolutely. And it gives them options. And I don't know how many times I've had patients call back on the Percocet and they've not been told to take ibuprofen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been doing the same thing. So now I prescribe methadone and tell them to take maximum doses of Tylenol Motrin. You prescribe methadone? <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, I've been doing the same thing as you. Okay. I, I've been prescribing oxycodone particularly. I yeah. wish hydrocodone came without acetaminophen added. Yeah. It's just too hard when you're telling a patient to mix and match Tylenol with a Percocet. I mean, that's an easy mm-hmm. way to destroy their liver. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. You know, that's something that you guys can take home and, and put into your practice because I think it's a better way to do pain management. And, you know, multimodal pain management with Tylenol and Motrin, I mean, those two drugs in combination taken together, most patients know that, don't know that they can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a, a very, very effective pain reliever. And also, they don't even know necessarily the appropriate dosing. 
think a lot of times they'll vastly underdose those medications. Practice recommendation number 11. Patients receiving controlled medication prescriptions should be able to verify their identity. I think we've all had that patient who has come in and they're, you know, complaining of a painful condition. They either get opioids or they don't with you in the emergency department. And then later on you find out that, hey, they are not who they, they said they were. And they uh, turn out to be using either someone else's name, their sister's name, the false ID. And this is one of the ways that people who have a history of diversion try to get around it. So, it, And it happens, I think, more than we realize. I had a patient that at one of our freestandings had a little bit of downtime, started doing some searching, and found a series of names. She had a hyphenated last name and just moved around everything to have at least five or six different aliases um, getting opiates from all over the state. Uh, So yeah, I I think it's an important thing to help prevent the inappropriate use of opiates. Practice recommendation number 12. Patients who receive opioids should be educated about their side effects and potential for addiction, particularly when being discharged with an opioid prescription. I think sometimes not only do we just so easily prescribe an opiate to a patient, but we never talk about any of the risks to it. I don't know if we assume that they know that or if we're just afraid to, or maybe we don't, maybe the physicians don't know themselves. But that's something we do a very, very bad job of. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we do this great when it comes to blood thinners, right? Right. When, you're, when we're prescribing, you know, Coumadin or we're putting someone on Xeralto because they've got a, a DVT or because they've got AFib, we sure as heck go, we sit down with that patient and say, listen, if you bonk your head and you fall, or if you start noticing that your stool is really black, or you vomit blood, you gotta bring your butt back here right away, because that is bad, bad juju. You are gonna be very sick from a medicine that I potentially prescribe you, with the intent of doing the best for your health. Uh, but with opioids, which we prescribe a lot more often, we have to be much more facile about having conversations with people. And telling them, hey, this stuff I'm prescribing because I really think you're in a lot of pain is dangerous. This is potentially addictive. This can cause lots of bad side effects like constipation. You shouldn't drive with this. You shouldn't drink with this. I mean, we have to do a better job of educating our patients that every time we prescribe an opioid to them, in a sense, we're kind of playing with fire. And that's not for all patients, right? In fact, the minority of patients who we prescribe a short course of opioids will actually get addicted to them. But it's, it is patients who sometimes get that short prescription from us that become addicted and, and we are their gateway into a lifetime of addiction and opioid misuse. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I mean, 80% of new heroin users started on prescription opiates and misusing them. And I think when you talk to patients about some of these risks, sometimes it prevents a script from even being written. Mm-hmm. And it may be a condition where you feel perfectly appropriate to prescribe an opiate, and you'll talk about it, and they'll say, well, well no, you know, I don't, I don't want any of that, actually. I don't want to even take that small risk. And I do notice a little bit growing understanding in the general public, and it's probably because how much the epidemic's um, becoming more talked about in the news about straight up saying, I don't want any narcotics, any opiates. Mm-hmm. Or they might have a family member. Actually, I just remember the last couple shifts I've had one person each night tell me either because of a prior history in themselves or a family member 
they kind of just went off the deep end and started abusing opiates from a, you know, initially a prescription for acute pain. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it's not just about though the overdose or the addiction and you know and the constipation you talked about. But these patients can have a lot of different things. They they become more immunosuppressed and at risk for infections. It can affect their bone health. Uh, there's a lot of things beyond the the typical ones we talk about that patients probably should be aware about. Practice recommendation number 13. When considering opioids, clinicians should prescribe the lowest possible effective dose in the shortest appropriate duration, generally less than three days. Only three days of opioids? You've got to be kidding me. Sounds crazy. Oh my gosh. What an inhumane monster (laughs) you are, doctor. What, what are you? What are you? You trying to torture me? Huh? I mean, that's probably what some of our patients think. But to tell you the truth, when you look at the physiology, acute pain only lasts three days, right? Afterwards, your body starts realizing, hey, I've got this painful thing, but it starts remodeling, it starts healing. And really, that acute pain starts to dissipate at day number three. That's not a number that we pulled out of our keisters. That's actually how the body heals. And as an example, when my wife had her C-section, right? She had a major surgery, we got sent home, etc. She only took her Norco for two days and then afterwards had Tylenol and Motrin and was pretty well controlled with that. So I think gone are the days that you should look at patients and say, hey, I should prescribe them 30 pills because this is a really painful condition. That's not backed up by science. That's not a logical thing. It's just us trying to do the right thing by the patient, but actually doing the wrong thing for them. Okay, and there's really interesting, you know, study that came out by the CDC. You, you familiar with this one, Eric? I, I I am. Yes, it's pretty fresh. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty fresh off the press, you know. But why don't you you run people through that? Because you know, I'm going to put you on the spot. Right. Here. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So this this is interesting. It kind of helps correlate the duration of that initial prescription with long term opiate. Use. And there really isn't anything out there. And there really wasn't much in the way of, you know, again, that three-day mark. Or It's now based on more evidence. Before, I think it was just these arbitrary numbers that we'd come up with. But going back to the study, you know, it's some pretty remarkable data that at seven days, a prescription longer than seven days, like 13 14% of those patients are using opiates at one year. I mean, that's crazy. And there's a significant increase as you go out in longer duration. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really te- kind of helps support the fact if we want to reduce the harms of opiates, particularly long-term dependence, mm-hmm. we probably should be limiting that initial prescription that we're providing from the emergency department for acute pain if we decide that opiates are most appropriate. Yeah. And, you know, to me, I, I, I took from that study a few different numbers. One the risk for long-term opioid use increases after three days, right? That's mm-hmm. when it starts increasing. That's mm-hmm. when you see that curve start going up. Two, at five days, if you prescribe more than five days, 10% of those patients will be on it at a year, right? Oh, you're like, oh, that's one in 10. That's not too bad. You prescribe more than 10 days of opiates, one out of five, 20% are on opiates for a year. If you go out and you start prescribing more than 30 days of opiates, that almost 45% of those patients are on it at a year. Holy God, is this stuff addictive and addictive really quickly. And what happens, I think, you know, we as, as ER docs kind of set the tone for pain control when they go back to their PCPs. And when they go back to their PCPs and they say, hey, well, the ER doctor gave me Percocet. 
it's much easier for the PCP to say, well, did that work? Oh, great, let me go ahead and write you another script. And it's been shown that people who get two scripts, much higher risk for long-term use. So really, you set the tone. Us as ER docs treating acute conditions set the tone and either expose patients to a significant amount of risk or don't expose them to that risk. And we have to, we have to own that. And one way we own it is by writing for only 10 pills or for less than three days and actually educating patients on one, the nature of pain, what's happening at your cellular and body level. And then two, the fact that you can take other stuff for pain control. Mm -hmm. Take Motrin, mm -hmm. take Tylenol together, you know. Um, we can give other medicines that help control pain better. We can do a heck of a better job and not create, continue to create a whole generation of people addicted to long-term opiates. Right, what seemingly is just a very inconsequential decision as far as duration of that initial prescription, you know, really there's some long-term downsides to it. And I think some more thought needs to go into it. And this is, again, there's a common theme, the education to patients I think is where this becomes very important in providing them with those other options. Because a lot of times they're just given the opiates, they're given a lot of them, and that's all they know to use. And they're taking them because their doctor told them to. So, Eric, from the study, too, what is the opiate with the highest uh, highest rate of uh, long-term use in addiction? Oh, man, quizzing me? Hmm. You know, I think it's one you wouldn't expect. It is. It was Tramadol, right? You, you read studies. No, you actually I, read that. Oh, my gosh. I did, I did. I did actually read that one. Yeah, Tramadol. Yeah, it blew my mind, right? But then Tramadol, which most people think is a partial agonist to the opioid receptor. Some people don't even call it an opioid. Well, people who don't call it an opioid, you're dead wrong. Tramadol is an opioid. Let's get that through our heads. It's an opioid. And it's actually got the highest long-term risk potential. That's crazy. So for those out there who are saying, oh, well, I'm not prescribing an opioid. I'm doing them a favor by prescribing them tramadol. Get in your head. Tramadol is just as dangerous. Don't be prescribing people tramadol thinking that you're doing them favors because you're just prescribing an opioid. And it just goes to one of the things that I truly believe, which is there is no such thing as a safe opioid. Tramadol is dangerous. Oxys are dangerous. The long actings are dangerous we should stop prescribing these drugs so willy-nilly. Right, no one's at zero risk. Practice recommendation number 14. Emergency departments should refuse to refill lost or stolen opioid prescriptions. Seems like no one ever loses their lisinopril prescription, <laughs> their Coumadin prescription. Yeah. What's up with that? I, I mean, it's, it's true. Uh, it's very rare, but the amount of times that, that people come in for a lost prescription you know, and then the violin comes out and the yeah, serenade yeah. starts playing and, you know, and suddenly it's, it's a saga of, of how, you know, how they're at the bus stop and someone stole their entire backpack and, you know. It's creative how it's, these opiate thieves go around yeah. uh, taking these things. Yeah, and I, I mean, maybe there are just a population of opiate thieves that go around. I mean, heck, a lot of people are addicted to them and, right? and uh, these oh. drugs apparently give you a great high, right? So, <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, so, yeah perhaps, I've heard. so perhaps there are this kind of, you know, underground opioid thieving societies that, that us in medicine are just aloof to. But 
It's also one of the major ways that patients who are addicted and are diverting try to get more drugs from providers. Right. This does happen. You know, obviously, people can have these stolen, but this is a common way that manipulators of the system will try to get more opiates to misuse or divert in other ways. So um, oftentimes, this is when I pull out my, old, my own violin and start playing this saga of how I sympathize, but I'm unwilling to prescribe another dose. Right. I think you just got to stick to your guns with this one. And sometimes you can shift blame. I always like to say, you know, well, they won't let me or, you know, I can't because of them. And this they and them, this overpowerful they and them, we can both uh, direct our hatred towards them. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And now you can point out these Colorado opioid guidelines and say it's those, those buggers at Colorado ASAP who, who control our emergency departments. Yeah. Won't, I just, won't I, let me do this. I just say it's Don Stater. Don, <laughs> Don Stater will not. I, I blame you. I blame you. <laughs> I actually give them your address and phone really? number. Really? Well, they, they, they won't be able to spell my last name on the... Uh... Yeah, Verzemnix is a bit of a tongue twister, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> so at the conclusion, you know, we must protect this house. Don't prescribe opiates for people who say they've lost their prescription. Right. Yeah. I and mean, this, this should be inherently obvious. And I think a lot of other opiate guidelines do uh, comment that, you know, loss or stolen prescriptions should not be done. Here we are saying it again because it's important. Holy God, by the way, mm. 14 practice recommendations. 14. That's a lot. That is a lot. But you know what? We're not done yet. We're not. We're not. Oh, okay. We're going to get into policy, baby. Ooh, Pol- right. Policy is sexy. Okay. Policy. Policy recommendation number one. As has been done in other states, the Colorado PDMP should develop an automated query system that can be more readily integrated into electronic health records and accessed by emergency clinicians. PDMPs, right? They're definitely a big part of what we do. Here in Colorado, we do have a PDMP that's somewhat functional, but could be so much better. Yes, key on somewhat. You know, it gets the job done. You can certainly query individuals and see their history with only a dozen or so steps. But I think that's the biggest issue is that, you know, to do that, I have to put in manually, not only log in with my password, but also put in manually patient's name, their birth date, and click a lot of buttons. And it's very easy to do that incorrectly and have to start all over. And then, and then what I love is once you actually get that patient, sometimes you pop up and they've got five different or 10 different addresses, right, some of right. which are just variations on the same address that you're trying to click through yeah. to find out which one's the actual one exactly. that has the patient's you know prescription drug information on it. So it's definitely not as straightforward as process as it could be, but also the problem is it's very active. I have to do this myself. I have to log into it. And if you're in the middle of a busy shift, you know, that takes time. And if you're, you know, one of these high prescribers too, and you're giving 30% of your patients opiates and you got to look it up on all those people, it's not going to happen, right? So it really should be something that's more passive or the information should be pushed to you. Um, And there's some other states that have done this quite well, right, Don? Yep. There's other states, you know, Washington state uh, has done a wonderful job with this. And this is now pushed to all providers. So the reason why Colorado ASAP has put this in our guidelines is so that now we can go to the Capitol and we can start saying, listen, guys, we wrote guidelines. And one of the biggest things that we can do as a state is make this easy on the doctor, right? The, the right thing should be the easy thing. 
And definitely in the case of PDMP, that's where we want to get to. So a lot of work to do here, but Colorado ASAP's going to be charging ahead and hitting people over the head with this until it's actually integrated into our medical systems. And you know what? One of the amazing things is this has actually been done for the first time in one of the EDs, ED systems in the state, and that's at University of Colorado. It's actually integrated into their EPIC program, but this can't only be ivory tower educational uh, you know, facility type technology. This has to be in every ED and we have to demand that it is in every ED. Policy recommendation number two, pain control should be removed from patient satisfaction surveys as they may unfairly penalize physicians for exercising proper medical judgment. Who doesn't love the pain score survey? How, how did the doctor do everything possible to control your pain when you are under their care? It's just a, such an unfair question, you know, from obviously we're biased as physicians, but it just places you in a very difficult position because mm -hmm. pain is very subjective. And like we're talking about, it requires an active determination on how best to treat it. And it may not be realistic to get a patient's pain to zero, but I think a lot of these surveys are set up to make it sound like that. And that's just not realistic or safe. Yep. Uh, and that's not what we should, we should be striving for. And especially if someone is coming to the emergency department and they want one thing, and that is Dilaudid or morphine or a narcotic prescription, it, you know, this sets it up that the physicians are going to have to prescribe that to make them happy, mm -hmm. to get a positive response on that satisfaction survey. Yep. It's, uh, there's good literature out there, too that kind of states that pain satisfaction scores are not tied to your usage of opioids, right? And I think that backs up some of our experience at our shop at Swedish, where we actually went to this Alto approach and we started really decreasing our usage of opioids, but our patient satisfaction scores have stayed steady. And it's a tough thing for us to, to kind of wrap our heads around, but we don't need to give opioids to get good patient satisfaction scores. We need to talk with patients about what we're doing for their pain. We need to bring a multimodal pain approach to the table, and we can really get patients satisfied without you know, hitting the opioid button all the time. The Staples Easy button of pain control is the opioid, uh, and it's something that we have to get away from. But at the same time, I don't think that these should be on the studies because you're right. It does kind of, it's not good medicine, right? No one's died from a pain score of 10. If there is pain scores of 10s that were dropping dead on the street, then yeah, you're right. Maybe we should be giving narcotics to everyone. But no one has died from a pain score of 10. And the fact that we're so focused on that pain score and that pain control rather than on good medicine has been to the detriment of our patients in our society. I think you're exactly right, and my satisfactions have remained in the toilet, and they're still in the toilet, but, you know, it, it does seem to influence how providers do prescribe these medications, and there are some studies out there that show that almost a third of providers have prescribed opiates when they aren't indicated because of their concerns about their satisfaction, yeah. and that's just not right. And now that satisfaction is tied to compensation, you know, from... Uh from the HCAP survey. I mean, it's something where, you know, we're incentivizing physicians in some cases to do the wrong thing for patients. Mm -hmm. And that's a very perverse thing. That, that should be taken out. So you hear this government? 
you got to take patient pain satisfaction scores or pain control scores out of age Get gaps. rid of them. It doesn't belong there. No. No. Policy recommendation number three. Opioid prepacks should be avoided or eliminated from the emergency department if 24-hour pharmacy support is available. So isn't, this isn't something that you know, I've come across in my practice. It's not something that we're allowed to do, but I know it becomes a little bit more of an issue in some of the rural communities um, dispensing these prepacks. And it's generally not a good idea to do it. For one, it's not something that can be tracked. It's typically not something that has to be reported, at least in Colorado, to the prescription drug monitoring program. So it is a little bit of a loophole that patients could exploit. Um, but there's certainly... Uh, some dangers to doing that. Yep, there are dangers for diversion, and that's why this is in here, because the diverting dangers are just higher when you use opioid prepacks. It also puts a lot more burden on the ED staff to actually give patient counseling for opioids. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, if you're not providing the same amount of counseling that people would get at a pharmacy where these are being dispensed, then we're not doing a good job with these patients. So prepacks, maybe there's some very rare instances rural communities that don't have a pharmacy, etc. But in general, these should be scrapped. If you're still doing it, you're kind of practicing old medicine. Policy recommendation number four. Pain should not be considered the fifth vital sign. This drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah, you know? no kidding. <laughs> like when I look at the vital signs and then right alongside us, their pain score, it's just crazy that it's somehow equated to be similar to you know, someone having hypoxia or hypotension or tachycardic. Yeah, and, and the amount of people who are texting on their cell phones and complaining of 10 out of 10, you know, intractable pain is just amazing. I, I'm amazed by how stoic those patients are, <laughs> right. by the way. Right. I, I'm not amazed about their calling their pain a 10. I'm just amazed that with a pain score of 10, they're still able to function at such a high degree. It is, it is amazing. And, and that's the problem is, is pain so subjective that it just really can't be equated to these very objective measurements and shouldn't be placed on the same level. And somehow it has. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for why that's happened. But the fact that it has such enormous leverage now is a little bit ridiculous. So I think we need to scale that back. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, to tell you the truth, this has been just such a giant coup for the pharmaceutical agencies that really push this. This is just awesome marketing. Uh, by pharmaceutical right. agencies that wanted us to over-focus on pain so that we would prescribe more opioids. So Purdue Pharma, you know, Merck, etc., congratulations. This is really a huge coup for you to infect medicine with this virus of counting pain as a vital sign. It's not a friggin' vital sign. Like I said, no one's died from a pain score of 10. Now, granted, we're all compassionate, empathetic, people who want our patients to not suffer. And for those people who we can tell are in pain, having kidney stones, you know, fractures, etc., we're not going to just write those people off. We're going to treat their pain. But to call pain subjective and to say that, you know, every patient has a you call it for pain score, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. And it's really taken us down that road of overprescribing these opioids. Don Savage, man. Savage. I'm just savage. Purdue. Pharma, just calling them out. <laughs> Love it. They're they're buggers. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. fact, if I could find <laughs> if I can find the marketing person <laughs> who thought that this that pain should be a vital sign, I would I would I would ask them to be tarred, feathered, mocked, flogged, 
There's a lot of things I would like to say to them. <laughs> Not a lot of them are very nice. Yeah. But, I mean, people are in pain, and we understand that. And we put together these guidelines to try to help those patients. But what's happened is that pain and severe pain is automatically equated with opiates in particular. And that's what's really wrong. And the mechanisms for that are largely driven by profit, greedy pharmaceutical companies. I mean, let's call it what it is. And did we have an issue with treating pain in the past? It was before my time, probably, from the sounds of it. But we've swung way too far the other direction. We've got to scale it back. Um, and, you know, we have other options available to us. But we also need to de-emphasize where pain scores are falling in our triage assessments and our evaluations of these patients. It's much more complex than just a number. Yep, much more complex than a number. Pain is not a vital sign. Um, it's a, it would be a hard thing to change within our medical, medical system and medical thought process, but it's something that should be a bit more de-emphasized. So you led us into our next podcast, the very smart, very capable Rachel Duncan. And the next podcast is going to talk about Alto. Oh, such an exciting topic. Alto, Alto, Alto gets me excited. <laughs> Sometimes I, I think of Alto and I, I can't sleep at night. Really? You too? Yeah, yeah I do. Wow. Right. You too. I know. Yeah. I know. That's why we text, you know, yeah. so much. Thank you. Late hours. Well, yeah. Appreciate it. So, yeah. Rachel, Rachel will knock you dead for the next <laughs> one. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Don and all the folks at the Emergency Medical Minute. <laughs>